Hey, hey, we're your hosts. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Jonathan. And we believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give to yourself is the gift of wholeness through integrating all aspects of what it means to be human. And in this podcast, we're bringing you insight, information, and inspiration to move from a stressful to stress-free life. Your journey to becoming even healthier and happier starts right now. Welcome to Wellness Theory, the podcast. Okay, welcome to today's show, everyone. And we are super excited to be introducing you to a very special guest. Jonathan McLennan is a weight loss coach and emotional eating expert who has lost himself over 100 pounds. Now, from nanotechnology researcher to Navy marine engineer to global trotting nomad, this guy's done it all. Okay, Coach John, as he's known, spent most of his life running from his true calling until one question changed his life. Now he's on a mission to help others lose weight for good and leave the BS diets in the rearview mirror. With Freedom Nutrition Coaching, he marries the science of metabolism with the psychology of behavior change and the compassion of human connection to create life-changing transformation with his clients, which just sounds so powerful. So welcome to the show, John. Thank you so much for having me. And I think I would like to have a British um, person inter- or in- introduce me every time I do a podcast because <laughs> it sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, I- as you might gather, I'm not I'm not from the UK, although technically I have heritage from uh, Northern Ireland, actually County Angeman, Belfast. Oh, so awesome. yeah, you got yeah, some there. Yeah, I could try to put an Irish accent on, but it might not. It might sound a bit funny if I try. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout the conversation, just vibe yeah, in and out of these different accents and see how it plays. Yeah. We'll just weave, we'll just weave that in there randomly. My apologies to any Irish people. <laughs> so listen, John. Thank you, obviously, so much yeah. for coming on. Um, one of the questions that I have to ask straight off the bat is, what was the one question that changed your life? From the yeah, well, maybe, yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe I'll just give a, a smidgen of a backstory. So I'll just lay the groundwork for how we got to that question because I think it, it, it all it all pieces together quite nicely. And so, um, as you mentioned, I spent quite a few years traveling with my wife and. It was during our time living in South Africa that I went from being like fairly athletic to being morbidly obese. And it was a, a result of a traumatic experience that I went through. And, and that really began my journey of weight loss in earnest. Now, prior to that, I would have thought that anyone who struggled with their weight was just lazy or undisciplined because that was kind of the world that I knew. I was an athlete. I stayed active. I ate pretty good, that kind of thing. Now, all of a sudden, um, after going through trauma, not really knowing how to cope or deal, um, using food as a coping mechanism and I gained over a hundred pounds, all of a sudden I'm trying to figure out how the heck do I lose weight? And this whole like dissociating with myself and my body, my identity. And, uh, then there's the pain of carrying all that weight. So I tried a lot of different things to lose weight. Um, my, my dietary attempts would have spanned basically from raw food, veganism to almost carnivore. Um, and so it's not that I tried every single diet, but probably every single variation of it. Um, and after a lot of failed attempts, it was, it was really when I finally connected with a coach who, who really shone a light on what the real problem was. And that was my relationship to myself and by extension, my relationship to food. And it was really this, I would call it a seismic paradigm shift because I had tried so many different things to lose weight and I'd really become very angry and spiteful towards my body. It was, it was though I felt my body was betraying me and I've been trying to punish it in submission. And so he worked with me to heal my relationship with myself and by extension food. And by doing that, um, that's when I was able to finally lose the weight for good. And so I can tell you it was October, 2017. You know, he said to me, Jonathan, if you make a list of all the things that you love and value 
how far down that list do I have to go before I see your name? And that, that question just stopped me cold because um, it wasn't that I was near the bottom of the list. It was I wasn't on the list, period. And all of a sudden, like everything that I thought about being male, being a man, being masculine, being strong, like it just, my entire worldview shifted all of a sudden. I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm not on the list. And here was another, like, and a male coach giving me permission to, to, to do that. So now I had to all of a sudden learn, what does that even look like? Or how do I do that? I love that. I think anyone <laughs> listening has probably already got goosebumps um, <laughs> having this conversation just because that's it's already so, so powerful. And I, I would raise that question for anyone listening as well. Is like, where would you place yourself on, on that list? And I'm really curious to know then, what, what did that journey look like for you as you were learning about loving yourself and taking care of yourself in such a way yeah what i actually like google how do you learn to self-love like truthfully because i didn't even know where to start um because really i think in 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 sort of the masculine culture that we grew up in i'm I'm nearing 40 and so you know i grew up and i was a kid of the 80s and 90s and you know we had like rambo as our you know our uh role model and so it was either that or Homer Simpson. So you're either like a sort of fat, lazy doofus, or you're this like super muscular, hyper masculine, you know, larger than life character. There was no real in between or balance. And, uh, you know, words like compassion and love, you know, they, they just seemed like words that didn't really belong in the, in the masculine lexicon, if I could put it that way. And so um, it actually started with something really simple, um, brushing my teeth every day. And... Uh, why, why I point to that one is because that was just an investment in myself. It was a simple act that said, I'm, I care enough about myself to do this. And so I, I kind of like to use analogies because I think it, it helps to, to make things clear. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, you're in Thailand. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So there's elephants over there. Now, uh, over in this part of the world, if you'd lived here maybe uh, in North America, maybe 100 years ago, you would have maybe gone to a circus and you would have seen a circus elephant. And you might have seen that circus elephant with its leg tied to a fence post. And you would say, what is this, you know, magnificent five or ten ton beast doing with its leg tied to a fence post? And why doesn't it just like yank it out of the ground and walk away? Because when that when that elephant was young, they tied its leg to that fence post and it tried to walk away and couldn't. It wasn't strong enough and it would have tried and tried and tried until eventually it gave up and said, I'm not strong enough to do this. Now, in that time, the elephant was growing bigger and bigger and stronger over time, but still held that belief in its head that I'm not strong enough to pull us out of the ground. Well, for us, it's kind of like a, a deeply held belief or sense of identity that, that could have started right in early childhood. And we, we continue to act that one out on repeat, not realize that we've actually grown into quite a powerful being in a sense. And so the way that I visualize it is the first, the first step um, the first action you take that's contrary to the belief that you hold about yourself or your sense of identity is kind of like pulling that that stake out of the ground. You know, it'd be kind of like um, your leg being tied to a landscaping stake. You know, it's like a one by two. It has a little orange ribbon at the top, you know, and anybody walking by seeing your leg tied to that stake would go, oh, just, just pull it out of the ground. They don't really realize, like, why it is it you feel like you're stuck there? And even that it's, it's quite scary to step away from something you identified as for a very long time. Totally, totally. Yeah, that and and I think sometimes it's it's hard for us to realize just how much impact our identity does have on what we what we believe we can and we can't do because often mm-hmm. we within the identity, right? We we're, we're not seeing 
it from the outside, right? It's easy for the, like, the onlooker walking past telling you to put it out of the ground. But for you to see yeah. it for yourself, that's a whole new challenge. So how did you start to see for yourself what was possible for you? And how did you pull the stake out of the ground? Well, it, it was that act of brushing my teeth. And it, it sounds, I'm like, maybe that, that could be a title of a book I write or something, you know, <laughs> how, how, how brushing my teeth changed my life. Um, but, but it was because that was the action that was contrary to the belief I held about myself. Because I was really, like, like we go back to, I didn't, I didn't even hold like a sense of self-love or so, even really self-respect. In fact, I was the proverbial set myself on fire to keep other people warm, uh, really kind of martyring myself at the expense of others. But that was really a reflection of this deeply held belief that I'm not really truly worthy of love and care. And so it's like I had to try to earn that from everybody by just working relentlessly. And I was a workaholic as well. And so uh, from there, that became like an anchor habit. And then, you know, it started, well, I would drink maybe 500 mils of water every morning. So then I start to hydrate. So it's because I think sometimes there's also a temptation to really like try to go into the sort of the transcendent or the esoteric when it really, we can be very, very practical about this, a physical action in the world that says that it's contrary to this belief. Like I am worthy of self, love and care. And that's why I brush my teeth every single morning. And then I drink a little bit of water and now, you know, I continue to build on that. And then it's like, now I go for a ride on my recumbent bike. And so I have this little habit stack and then I have like family snuggle time, you know, with my wife and my young son. And so it, it just continues to grow, but it really started with one simple action that was contrary to the belief I held. And, and why I highlight that it was a small action is um, because the way that our brain works really very often, if we try to take a, a dramatic action, that is a really significant departure from a belief that we hold our primal brain will put up what I call the emotional brick wall and it will actually drive us back to a place of familiarity which it deems to be safe and so this is why we find ourselves maybe getting trapped in, in patterns of self-sabotaging behavior where the logical brain will say man I don't know why I'm doing this like it doesn't make sense because yeah it's not coming from your prefrontal cortex it's coming from a different part of your brain nice definitely and it's just so true because like you you focus you talk about nutrition obviously in this mm -hmm. big part of what you do but as we talked to as we talked to you in the past and what we've seen that you do it's you're not that traditional nutritionist you're not that person who goes okay you need to eat healthy and this is your plan follow it you're going to get results you do yeah. come at it from that um that psycho psychological and emotional perspective mm -hmm. because it has such a huge correlation between the both you like these eating issues yeah. most people have, these eating disorders people have, and how they perceive and kind of worship food in in, in a in an yeah. unhealthy way, it comes down to that psychology and that emotion. So, yeah, what I'd like to ask you is what kind of with the clients you've um, worked with, or even just anyone that you've helped, what correlation have you seen between kind of well, food, <laughs> the, the food mm, that yeah. people consume, and kind of their, their thought process, their emotion, um, their emotions that they show, just the way they show up. So is there any correlation between the food they consume and how they think and act? Oh, 100% there is. Um, and, uh, and I like to, sort of my perspective is that all behavior makes sense. So I start from that, that premise. Um, and I don't mean that all behavior is helpful or good or beneficial, but it, al it always makes sense if we kind of understand the what's driving the behavior and it's really why i've coined this phrase brain driven weight loss because we're, we look at the brain as ultimately the driver of our of our behavior and so um i i 
I also say I try not to, I meet people at the ground floor. I don't shout at them from the 10th floor. So I have this kind of analogy, I, I, as you, you gather, I really like pictures. And I think about, um, for example, in the coaching world, because every one of us has gone on our own sort of personal development journey. Maybe we're, we're in the 10th floor of a building and we have an entirely different perspective looking at people walking around sort of at the ground floor level or the sidewalk level. And it's very tempting for us to want to shout at people and be like, hey, it's so great up here. Like the air is amazing. There's It's a lot less crowded. Like it's a you know much bigger perspective and so on. And they're down there amidst all the noise of day-to-day -day life. And they're like, what? I can't hear you. So we actually have to walk down to the ground floor, speak at them in, in a way that, that it's at their level first. And it's not to say that we're any, any better or superior. I'm not trying to suggest that in any way, but it's just someone that's maybe further along in a developmental journey than another person. But we still have to be able to communicate at their level first to invite them into um, going on this journey and breaking from that, that, that sort of pattern of behavior they've been stuck in for, for many, many years. And so I don't think I actually answered your question though. You were kind of saying, what, what is the sort of behavior connections that I see? Um, and for most people, food, like you'll never hear me say food is just fuel. Um, I understand why people say that, that because it's actually an attempt to divorce themselves from the emotional connection they have to food. They're really trying to, but it's really actually like trying to shut it down and suppress it. Um, when in fact food represents many different things in our life, uh, history, culture, family, social connection, there are many other wonderful aspects of food. Like it's it's inherently enjoyable to eat, uh, and we don't we don't want to deny ourselves some of the, these pleasures in life. But what happens, like in our brain, is um, we we learn behaviors quite quickly when there's a dopamine response. So let's just say that uh, it, I'm stressed, and then I eat uh, a bar of chocolate, and all of a sudden my brain goes, "Woo, that felt good," and my stress kind of disappeared, and the brain goes, "Ding, we just learned something." Now, the next time I'm stressed, I repeat that behavior, and now I'm starting to form a habit. My brain realizes I have a very simple and a very fast solution to stress. Now, the problem is if you keep going back to that solution, you're going to start to gain weight because uh, that, that behavior is going to expand. And you're not, broccoli doesn't give you a dopamine response, uh, really. I mean, I guess you could feel very virtuous as you eat it, and maybe you'd get a bit of one. But, and so this is where we find ourselves trapped in the pattern of behavior. But the normal response to that is, okay, I'm overweight, I have a problem, so I'm going to have to cut out this food from my life because it's, you know, I'm just picking on chocolate, for example. Um, I have to cut out chocolate because I've gained too much weight. Well, the problem is we've never actually addressed the real reason why you're eating the chocolate, and so now the craving loop starts because uh, your brain will start to have a tantrum. That was, You took away a solution to a problem, and you don't have another solution for me, so now I don't know what to do. And then kind of the third piece of the puzzle is... Uh, kind of this identity piece. So now we start to use a narrative to try to describe or explain our behavior. So we use, like we use stories to, uh, so we might say, for example, I'm a chocoholic. So now what we're saying is we're trying to explain our behavior through this, I'm addicted to chocolate. And there's actually a little bit of a victim narrative tucked into that story as well. I'm in the grips of something that's more powerful than me and I'm helpless to change it. And now we're gonna start to act out that identity on repeat. So every time you see chocolate, what's, what's your brain gonna do? hey, remember, you're a chocoholic. You should eat the chocolate. And we want to act in congruence with our sense of identity. So when you when you kind of mix all those things together, the habits, the cravings, the behavior, and so on, all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, this is a little deeper than just handing somebody a meal plan. 
it, uh, this is like music to my ears <laughs> listening to a nutrition coach, a nutrition therapist sort of speaking this way, right? Because it's so common, because obviously, as, as everybody listening knows, and as you and you know there, Jonathan, we, we spent most of our time um, or most of our career in the early days in the fitness space, right? Which is all about mm-hmm. exercise and nutrition. And it was a case of change the behavior, get a different result, right? So stop eating the chocolate, different result, right? And again, people can do these like um, diets and food shifts for like a week, even 30 days, even three months. And usually at that point, it's like the behavior change just usually isn't enough. Yes, there'll be some positive, you know, result from that some way, shape or form. But then how sustainable is that? Because that's when people we see obviously start yo-yoing and this kind of dynamic starts. And we fail to recognize what's driving the behavior in the first place. And I think it's so overlooked, which is why I'm so happy that you're speaking about this, because there's that emotional element to it, the state that's driving that behavior. And then there's obviously yeah. the, the precondition, right, that, that we all have, which is that sense of identity. It's like what we've created about ourselves over time. So my question to you here is, how do we start to, to shift? Because it's so easy for somebody to understand, okay, well, I changed my behavior, I get a different results, stop eating chocolate, maybe I'll lose weight. So how does somebody then start to, to shift the emotional attachment to mm-hmm. that experience and also kind of second part of the question how do they then start to shift that identity at the core level in a way that lasts well i, I like to say that um compassionate awareness is the the first step to change and i, I very deliberately add in the word compassionate mm-hmm. and so maybe i take one step back and say like how do i how do i like to sort of define compassion because well, uh, i'll give you an example so let's just say i have a client who's down half a bottle of wine and I bump into them and I go, oh my gosh, you're halfway down a bottle of wine. What, you know? Now, the old response might have been, why are you drinking wine? That doesn't, you know, that doesn't work. You know that's not helping you. Um, and so I'm really using shame and guilt to try to coerce a behavior out of them. So there's really negative energy connected with that. The other side of that equation, though, doesn't really help. If it's like, oh, well, you're already halfway down. You might as well finish it now because you had a hard day. That's called enabling. And you're actually going to continue to, and so compassion really is kind of this middle ground where we we seek to understand um, the the human struggle, and so it's like, all right, you're halfway down a bottle of wine. Let's let's figure out why why that bottle of wine's in your hand, and let's do it without judgment. And so I think that's really really important. So because otherwise, if we if we bring because a lot of our behaviors are really um, done subconsciously or even unconsciously, either midbrain or you know, so we form these habits, and um, we need to bring those unhelpful behaviors into our conscious awareness. Uh, you know, I, I like to think if, if we had that spray that they have on CSI, you spray it on the bottom of people's feet and then you shine the UV light and you can kind of see the pattern of their movement throughout the house. You, you would see a certain pattern of movement when they walk into say their kitchen or their pantry or things like that. You would see these, these patterns of behavior start to emerge. And there's people out there, um, let's say they've probably found themselves standing in front of the pantry with the door open, just literally staring and then they sort of come into this conscious, like, oh my gosh, how did I get here? Or like, what, what am I doing here? Or staring at the fridge. How many people stand in front of the fridge with the door open, just like literally staring, waiting for something to jump out at them? So these, these things kind of exist in our, in our unconscious patterns of behavior. Now, what might happen if we bring them to our conscious awareness? You're, so we're going to shine a light on a problematic behavior. The first impulse for many people is to start to judge themselves and go like, this is uncomfortable. I'm a flawed human being. I don't want people to see this. I'm going to bury this behavior. 
that's the natural response. And that actually really prevents us from being able to grow and, and change. And so th this is why I say compassion is such a crucial element to uh, being, being able to create change. So we want to, um, I like to say, almost like giving my clients permission to wrestle with their demons in the light. So I say, we're going to bring these, these, these struggles into the light and we're actually going to talk about it from a curious perspective and, you know, just a human interest perspective rather than a judgmental perspective or a let's bury that. Because I think even as, as a young coach, when I was first starting out, you know, a client would, would share something with me that wasn't really related to nutrition. And I'm like, oh, that's uncomfortable. Like maybe their pet had died or, you know, a relative had been diagnosed with this. You know, and I didn't know what to do. So I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do with this piece of information? <laughs> you know, this isn't this isn't in my scope of practice. And it's like, well, just be a human, you know. And so I I know I didn't quite uh, address your question in one sense, but it's really I, I like to start with that compassionate awareness piece and say, let's let's bring this into our awareness, and let's get curious about it because once our mind is open and it's not on the defensive, then we're actually more likely to be able to create some change. And so uh, the other thing is. I often refer back to sort of this primal mechanism or primal defense that we have in our brain. If it feels unsafe to be vulnerable because we feel insecure and in danger, even though it's not like we're actually facing a tiger or something like that, but it feels dangerous to be vulnerable, we're going to retreat back into our old patterns of behavior, the, the, the safety of familiarity. But if, if, if we can create a space where it's actually safe to be vulnerable, um, safe to struggle, then we can we can create change yeah yeah absolutely i mean i think i i agree i think all all change really comes from a space of learning but a space of awareness right it has to like i love that you add the the compassionate awareness because you're right like otherwise we're just closed off to ourselves right and that's like the worst place to be if you want to create change so that being said though so that's definitely clearly the the first step in in opening to to change itself and being able to actually observe and look free of judgment. How do you help your clients or even how have you helped yourself previously with managing emotions when it comes to trying to change behavior in and around food? Yeah, I think um, the first thing again is to, to realize that emotions and including negative emotions are a part of life. So we, we come to this place of acceptance because I think, we, we've really been conditioned, um, I think, particularly in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years of sort of the digital media age, um, where we see a lot of people's highlight reels in a way we've never seen before. It sort of conditions us to have this certain perspective on life, as though when life isn't perfect, when we're not happy, that something is wrong and this must be corrected. And I think that's a really, a really short-sighted way to view life. Um, life presents a colorful spectrum of emotions to us. And if we don't have sadness, we don't really truly understand or appreciate happiness. Um, if we never expressed, uh, experienced grief and loss, we don't really understand how to cherish things that we do currently have. And so we need the balance of both to really fully experience life. And so uh, the, the first thing is really to, to open up this idea that when you have a negative emotion, it's not, a, it's not necessarily an immediate problem that must be erased, you know, because most people, it's the impulsive response is, this is uncomfortable, this feels painful, I want it to go away right now. And food is like the fastest way to do that. And so um, sometimes it's just a little bit like, uh, we, we could call it like urge surfing as an example. So let's just say somebody has an uncomfortable craving. And I say, can you put like 
three minutes between yourself and the action. So just three minutes, spend a little bit of time sitting with that uncomfortable emotion. See if you can figure out where do you feel it in your body. Uh, so instead of um, shooing it away, um, say, okay, do I feel it? Where do I feel it in my body? Where is it showing up? Um, could I could I put a shape to it? Uh, does it have a color? You know, is it moving? And so on. So really get them kind of curious about this uncomfortable feeling. That they're, and, and as we begin to get a little bit comfortable being uncomfortable, it, it starts to it starts to shift, and so uh, we because we really want to cultivate a sense of resilience because life will be uncomfortable. Change by nature is uncomfortable. Growth is uncomfortable, and so we need to cultivate a little bit of resilience in the face of discomfort in order to truly grow and change. Absolutely, uh, for sure, definitely, and obviously the one what well, you said obviously about that emotional connection there, and one thing that I found when working back in the day um obviously with in in more of the fitness realm especially dealing with nutrition mm -hmm. is people obviously that emotion that comes up with that connection to the food but then why where where is that emotion coming through from a thought, thought process as well is like why is that emotion there and then mm -hmm. bringing that back to how they actually think and perceive the food they're eating and this is where people start beating themselves up about oh i had a biscuit I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. Why did I do that? That was bad. I mm. literally ruined all my results. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but like, and then obviously that, that thought process of listening those emotions and that's creating that chemical response in the body. And then it's it like, is, yeah. And, and it's not, you're going the opposite way to the result you want. And then you blame the biscuit instead of blaming the emotion, like not blaming it, but you're not taking responsibility for the emotion, mm. which is attached to the thought that you're having about your, relationship and your belief around food um i've had so many times even now I, I i still hear it which is in this day and age is about oh i don't eat carbohydrates because they're going to make me put on fat or i don't need this food <laughs> yeah. add for me and i heard this stuff 20 years ago when i first started as a personal trainer and i'm still hearing it 20 days later uh, 20 years later and it's like it's quite a scary thought thing to to know that's still going on out there with everything that we know now and yeah and what we know but that does come down again to looking at social media looking at what's out there and looking at the messages that people are putting out and it's still the same message is again like you said it's follow these new exciting diets because they're going to work for you yeah. and avoid everything else and what i like to try and get people to understand is that when it comes to food your relationship with food it's no good or bad it's yeah. about how you perceive that food. It's your thought process and your belief system yeah. is creating your emotional attachment to that food. So what's, what's your thoughts on that? And what kind of, and also the, the challenges that your clients face when they come to you around their belief system with food? Well, you really, you kind of highlighted what we would call the all or nothing mindset. And, uh, you know, one, one of my favorite pictures of that is like, if you get a flat tire and then you decide to slash the other three tires. And in my <laughs> case, I, I was so... I was so disordered in my behavior that I'd set the car on fire and walk home because I'd ang angrily just want to spite myself for, for a tiny slip up. And so we call these cognitive distortions, right? So it's when we when we, we develop this exaggerated sense of reality in our head about what just happened. Like, um, for example, I have a headache, so I probably have a brain tumor. Like, yeah. oh my gosh, that's that's quite a leap to make <laughs> there, you know? Or we use like overgeneralizations. I always screw up on Fridays or things like that. And so when we... When we um, recognize these thinking errors that are taking place um, again that's where that awareness can, can start to um, create change because these cognitive distortions really um, 
they cause us a great sense of despair. And so I think a lot of people aren't even aware of the cognitive distortions and thinking areas that uh, errors that we experience. And so again, to, to sort of bring it back to this awareness piece, when you catch yourself in a thought pattern like that, you're, you're actually allowed to take a step back and go, hang on a sec. Is that likely what's actually taking place here? You know, is my entire day ruined because I ate a biscuit? Uh, oh, it's, it's, it's not actually like when, upon investigation, we find it's probably not that true. Like if I have a headache, yeah, probably more likely I'm dehydrated than I have a brain tumor, you know? Um, and so really sort of, but again, because the way that I, I, I go back to how like digital media has really influenced our perspective and perception of life. Um, everything is so exaggerated and, and sort of glamorized and, uh, hyper emotive and, and triggering in a sense that I think it, it fosters that type of thinking in us and so sometimes for people i'm like hey look maybe you need to take a break from digital media uh, uh you know for a day or a week or you know like if you if you don't require social media for work for professional purposes maybe take a break from that and just see like three or four days later your your brain waves are already going to start to change in a, in a very positive way and you might realize that social media doesn't need to play such an important role in your life yeah yeah definitely. totally definitely and i think that's something that's another addiction in itself which is a is a another podcast i think for another day no it, it's been engineered for a dopamine drip <laughs> exactly exactly uh, so john I, i'm curious to know aside from like taking a break from from media mm-hmm. is there any other kind of practical advice or tips or anything that maybe our listeners could go away and do if they they notice that they're getting stuck that that the thoughts and getting stuck in that vicious cycle because you've given a great um tip already around the emotions around mm-hmm. just taking like a three minute pause between yeah. your urge and your action so what about from a thought perspective is there anything that you could suggest well i mean i use the acronym fast um and so, and it's kind of like, I, I, I'd say, here's how you can crush your cravings fast in a sense. So, um, you know, the, the F stands for feel. So that's again, actually being present with what you experience in your body and maybe getting curious about it. A is, is acknowledge or, or ask. So, um, it's really about recognizing that this, this, this emotion isn't something that still needs to be chased out of your body. Um, but you, you can actually acknowledge it's present. S um, stands for speak. Um, but it, you don't necessarily have to speak verbally out loud, but really produce some language. Can you put words to what your experience is? Um, whether it's written, whether it's speaking, it doesn't matter if you're talking to yourself, writing a piece of paper, talking to a friend, but can you, can you verbalize what you're experiencing? That one can be a little bit tricky for people because sometimes these, these feelings and experiences actually come from a time in our experience before we really had linguistic abilities. In other words, you know, before we're maybe two years old or things like that. So it's, um, and then, but, and T is time. That's that, that time piece. So most, the, the, the most intense part of um, our, our emotional experience, it, it usually lasts about seven to 10 minutes. It kind of comes and goes like a wave. And so with, with the understanding that it's, it feels like in the moment, it's going to ramp up to infinity. Like it's getting more and more intense. It's not going to stop. It's going to ramp up to infinity till my head explodes. And that's not the case. It's going to, it's going to reach a peak and then it's going to drop off. And yeah, it might come back because they come and go in ways. But even with that awareness, um, that, that, that equips us with, okay, this is going to be uncomfortable for a period of time, but I can actually, I can, I can deal with that now that I know there's a finite limit to this experience and that allows me to move forward. 
Yeah, right. I think it's super helpful. I like that a lot. We love an acronym, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, That's really, really useful, definitely. I'm really curious to take this um, conversation really back to kind of how you started where you said that your journey in terms of hmm. weight was triggered by trauma. So I'm hmm. curious to know, was that just the, the behavioral side the, of, of the, your decisions around food that was a challenge or was it also um, more of like a, a physiological perspective as in your, your system was in very much a triggered state that it stops you from being able to lose weight? I'm curious kind of how that played out for you. Uh, both. So um, because we continued to live in South Africa for another four or four and a half months after the incident occurred. And so, so because of that, um, there were there were multiple other incidents, none quite as severe and violent as the first one that happened to me. But there were multiple incidents that that uh, it just compounds on the original trauma that's never yet been resolved, and so it just creates these layers of stress. And so you know, cortisol is just like through the roof. You know, if you were to do, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Dutch test. It's dried urine test of comprehensive hormones, and that's a way you can sort of analyze your 24-hour hormonal fluctuations. And, um, you know, I did a Dutch test a couple of years later when I was back in Canada, and my cortisol was still like redlined. They're like, you, you know, you have enough cortisol for a horse. Um, like it, it was, it was off the charts. In other words, like <laughs> it was past the red marks on their calibrations. And then we, we you know, really interesting. We look, and, and I had virtually no testosterone at all. Um, and then really high estrogen levels, and that that's also driven by uh, excess body fat. But I don't want it to get get lost on the uh, endocrinology trail here. Um, but just that there's that element first of all, the compounding stress. Um, the, then there's all of the like intrusive thoughts, um, and so uh, after being traumatized by a violent attack, uh, there's the, there's the desire, the temptation to want to take back what was taken from me. I think we could say that hurt people hurt people or want to hurt people and so for me i had a lot of thoughts of like violent retribution and uh, that was a really difficult place for me to be because i actually didn't want those thoughts in my head but they kept showing up and uh because there's, there's always a part of the brain or at least i felt in my experience with trauma there was a part of my brain that recognized that like something's not right here this isn't who i am like i'm not a violent person so to experience these thoughts where I, I literally wanted to set traps for people so I could carry out violent retribution, um, I knew I was in a pretty bad place. Yeah. So food was, again, probably the most socially acceptable way to still function in society. And it wasn't that I deliberately set out to be a, a binge eating food addict, um, but it was that the pattern of behavior that I described earlier. Um, I ate something and it's like, okay, that brought me a little bit of relief. It didn't, it didn't solve the problem, but at least allowed me some breathing room. Um, turns out I needed a lot of breathing room because I, I ate a lot. And so there was, you have the, the massive sort of stress, compounding stress response, you know, being built on original, you know, this original massive traumatic event, um, a, along with everything else that was going on in my head. And then kind of the, it, it was like for a period of time, I was almost like disconnected from my body. Like I, I was in complete denial that this was happening to me, that I was gaining weight rapidly. In my head, I was still picturing myself as like this, this strong and, and, and capable athlete. And, and it wasn't until we actually got back to Australia, where my wife is from, that I was kind of able to take stock and go like, because now at least, even though I was still traumatized, I was out of the immediate danger. Because living in South Africa, after you get, you know, you can only get robbed and broken into and, you know, attacked so many times before. It's just like, it just, uh, it feels like there's, there's no relief. There's no relenting and no letting up. I also wasn't sleeping in that, that, that four and a half months. Like really, 
you know, we, we would, uh, so you add that into it as well. There's really no rest and recovery taking place. Like I was just in a very, like, uh, very atrocious state of health for, for lack of a better word. So when I, when I kind of took stock, it was just like, I was stunned. How the heck did I get here? Because for the last four months, I was basically reliving my trauma daily. And I was kind of like almost somewhat like I was, it's, it's amazing how I was able to function in my, in my day to day. I was able to carry out my executive functions in terms of uh, the instruction that we were doing with our students and things like that. Um, but it was, it was all like this facade because inside I was just filled with all of this internal turmoil from rage and distress and things like that. So when I got back to Australia, it was like, it was my opportunity to sort of start to breathe around this and, and take stock and go like, holy crap, like what? what happened to me? How did I get here? And, and, uh, but, but for me, it was actually really distressing to kind of take stock of the reality of my situation because I'm like, I've never been here before in my life and I have no idea how I'm going to find my way back. And so that thus began this really difficult journey that probably spanned. It was from the time the incident happened to the time that coach asked me that question was, uh, six years. So there was quite a, quite a lengthy journey trying to resolve a lot of this. Absolutely. And, and the coach that you was working with, was that, what, what what kind of um, like road to recovery did you take? What kind of coach did you have? How long did it take you to reach out for help? Obviously, you had this mm-hmm. testing. So so what did that like? Paint us a picture. Well, I would say I actually tried a number. Of, like tried to hire a number of different coaches, um, and it was actually a really frustrating experience, um, by and large, and uh, because, and I don't want to put all the responsibility on the shoulders of the coaches because I didn't know what I needed. I just knew that I was distressed and I thought that I just needed to hire somebody to help me lose weight, but they didn't know how to deal with my patterns of behavior. They didn't know how to deal with someone who'd been traumatized. And so it was like, why aren't you sticking to your macros or why aren't you following the food plan or you know what to do? And I, you know, I kept wanting to scream like, yeah, I'm not stupid. You're treating me like I'm an idiot. And it's like, I, I also knew that I knew what to do, but I didn't really understand that was coming from the prefrontal cortex, but my behaviors are really coming from like the, the old reptile brain there, um, really. And so, and, and so much more powerful. That's the thing. And I think many people out there, you would find yourself saying things like, I know what to do, but I can't seem to do it. Uh, like these overwhelming urges would just wash over my body and I felt powerless to, to even change it. And so I was like probably ready to give up on even trying to hire coaches. And I just was sort of resigned to the fact that this is just going to be my struggle for the rest of my life. I didn't really see a way out. And then um, it was when I, I, uh, I was getting a test done for life insurance. So I was, I was purchasing some additional life insurance and they do a health assessment. And, uh, you know, they, they, they couldn't get my blood pressure to come down. And they you know it was like, you know, 145 over hundred or something like that. And, um, or 110, like it was, it was elevated. And of course my weight and my waist circumference, like it's actually really in one sense, a little bit humiliating when I was 35 years old at the time, getting these assessments done and and identifying like it's going to cost me extra money because I'm more likely to die in my current state. Like I'm more likely to die sooner in my current state of health. So that was, you know, that was in itself was really shocking for me to to sort of have to face up to that reality that I'm I'm in my current state of health. If I continue this path I'm on, I'm going to have a much shorter life if I don't change something. And so I kind of, as sort of a last ditch thing, hired this coach and, you know, he's a natural bodybuilder. Um, and I thought maybe I'd be able to, if I looked like him, I saw this idea in my head that if I, if I could look like him, I'd be happy instead of being unhappy, being in this really fat body. And, and, uh, he, he treated me with compassion and it was not what I was used to. 
Um, so I was used to coaches trying to shame me, guilt me, um, coerce me in a sense, tell me, you know, and like I go back to, I know that I'm actually really intelligent and it's not me trying to toot my own horn. I just, I say I got my brain free of charge, but I have a really good brain. And, uh, but I couldn't seem to help myself. And that was the most sort of, uh, and that really sort of fostered this sense of like hatred toward myself. Like, why am I such a loser? Why am I so stupid? Why can I help so many people? Because I was actually successfully coaching other people. That's the irony in this is that, but for me, I think coaching was also a way of fixing other people's problems because I felt helpless to fix my own. Uh, so it was this really like, create, I look back now and I go, oh my gosh, like this is really messy sort of psychological and emotional journey that I was, uh, that, that I was trapped in. Um, and so it was this coach that showed me compassion again, and, and really was able to ask really good questions and then kind of hold space for me to, I almost don't like that term because it's really a cliche to say hold space, but really be present with me um, as I grappled with and struggled with these questions and not necessarily, you know, feeling the need to, to shout answers at me or tell me, you know, but just to let me wrestle with these things um, and just ask curious questions and kind of explore the process with me. And it really began to feel okay to be where I was at and okay to be struggling and okay to be human. And uh, I think that was that was the biggest catalyst for, for creating lasting transformation. That's huge. I mean, I'm just curious, this, the, the bodybuilder that you went to, you would, did he have any like other qualification or experience oh, yes. yeah. in this way in terms of helping somebody with your hmm. patterns? Um, I don't know if he, he knew exactly what he was getting into with me either um, because, I, because I didn't really know, I, I, I still didn't know exactly what it was that I needed help with. That's the truth. And I think this is where a lot of people find themselves where they're like, I need help and I don't know what to do. And this is what keeps people turning to, I call it the lottery ticket mentality, like turning to different fad diets. And, um, you know, in, in one sense, you could say a, a lot of these fad diets will work to a degree. Because they, they really all involve the same basic principles, kind of restricting your food intake, um, eating more whole foods, eating less junk food, moving your body a little bit more. So these basic fundamental principles of health like still apply in a sense, but unless we address like the, the, the inner work. And so uh, he, he is a, a, like a precision nutrition level two master coach, um, which helps. And I, I have that certification now as well. Um, because of like his work, I was like, whatever it is that you're doing, this, this Jedi mind stuff, um, I, I want to learn this too. Um, and so I think that was a really big part of it. Um, what, why I decided to go after that qualification as well, because they, they really explore the psychology of behavior change and, and the, the concept of deep health, which is, um, which is really fun, like looking at the human being as a whole. And so um, I think that was, that was again really this eye-opening catalyst for me in terms of okay i need to change how i approach myself and as i was able to change um, my relationship to myself and how i worked with myself i was actually able to really shift how i worked with clients and coaching them as well nice i love that i really especially I, the reason i asked that was i was curious to know is it just compassion that was the difference from mm -hmm. all of them but it was obviously compassion and also him having a greater understanding of, of mm -hmm. human behavior and essentially wellness yes. rather than just nutrition um, and yeah. I, I almost think, and this is just opinion, obviously, that precision nutrition have almost done themselves an injustice by mm -hmm. almost pitching on themselves as just nutritionists, because I think there's, yeah. there's so much more to it than that. Uh, but that's, that's yeah. just opinion. <laughs> no, I, I agree. Um, uh, because I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm connected with some of the, I've even coached some of the, the person, precision nutrition employees, um, because I obviously working with them being in their program and I got to know some of them. And, and so I've worked with some of their coaches as well. And, and, 
I agree. They're, they're they're doing a really really good thing, but in a sense, they've been a little bit pigeonholed because they're this now this very large organization that it's like trying to turn a cruise ship around or an aircraft carrier around. Like it's you just you know you can't really do that. But for me, I like that in one sense because it um, I'm I'm like a much more agile little company, and uh, I have the ability to create these shifts. And um, well, I can't really talk about it publicly yet. Like there is a collaboration that I'm I'm forming with some coaches, um, sort of around this and really building on the foundation that that PN set. And so we're we're just starting to try and figure out what this actually looks like. But we recognize we need to amplify these voices that are speaking about this in an entirely different way. Um, because uh, there's still people out there now, their experience is going to be a really frustrating one where, because I think a lot of people become coaches or, or trainers, maybe because they're already like fairly fit and we kind of look at them and, and we, we treat it like success leaves clues, but really what we're looking at is survivorship bias. Um, a lot of people will maybe look the way they do, even in spite of what they do, not necessarily because of what they do. And then other people will try to follow whatever it is that they do and, uh, it doesn't work. And that was the case for me. You know, hiring these coaches who had, you know, good physiques and looked looked good on Instagram, uh, didn't translate into actually being able to work with someone in a real world way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I'll say, if, if literally every single fitness, health and fitness course out there came with that element of mental and emotional intelligence and understanding how we actually function as one, I don't think we're gonna we'll stop seeing this this road, well, sorry, road okay, this, this circle of hmm. chaos and destruction um, every year where people have the good intention to want to improve their health um, or improve their weight or whatever it is, but then obviously find out the fact that the information that they're being told is not complete. And yeah. they're going around, like you said, from coach to coach, from guru to guru, from whoever it is, getting the same information or something different conflicting and it, it, there's no connection there. Um, I think it's also, if I could just chip in there, I think it's also an artifact of um, the, the Western medical model as well, where we've really glorified the specialist. Um, you know, it's like if you have a problem with your gallbladder, you'll see a gallbladder specialist. If you have a problem with your um, elbow, you'll see like an elbow specialist or problem with your shoulder, you see a yeah. shoulder specialist and so on. And there's a real disconnect. You don't have a team of people going, let's look at you as a cohesive unit. And yeah, we can have these specialists, but like they're not, there's these walls of communication that aren't happening. And so what we need, and maybe I'm sort of alluding to something that I'm working on, <laughs> is like these people that are almost like you have a team of people working on you and you might go from one to another, but there's now communication between these various specialists and, and they're now seeing you as a cohesive unit as opposed to, um, you're, to me, you're just a gallbladder. And yeah. once we fix your gallbladder, I'm done. Yeah. Exactly. No. And so we want to create this, this, this communication around like, you know, well, what about the brain? What about the gut? You know, yeah, what about the human kinetics and so on? And so really opening up this idea of collaborative work in this field. And I think it's also driven by a bit of a scarcity mindset or model. There's a lot of people out there that need help. There's actually billions of people that need help. Um, and so, this, but but when we, we all have our own little businesses and we fear like, oh my gosh, if I like collaborate with other people, there's a concern that um, I might lose business or something like that. And it's like, we're, we've, we've lost sight of the fact that and uh, you know in, in sort of our capitalistic type society we've lost sight of the fact that ultimately we're 
we're trying to help people. We're trying to serve them. But a lot of people go into even business, whether it's a coaching practice or, or a medical practice, serving their own sort of self-interest and, and trying to enrich themselves um, rather than having some, sort of an altruistic motive. And it's it's not that I, I don't want to say that I'm a communist or, or, or I don't have sort of leanings in that way, but I just recognize the limitations of even sort of, if we look at a, a bigger perspective of sort of this, this self-serving capitalistic model where it's like, I can't collaborate with somebody else because it might potentially take money out of my pocket. And we've lost sight of the fact that a business really only exists to to help people, um, to solve problems, and to create a value exchange. And when it's a one-way value exchange, because we see a lot of this in the in the in the coaching industry, um, a lot of sort of even like predatory sharks who essentially people who need help are in this really emotionally vulnerable state, and. Uh, I know how to run high ticket sales, for example, as we call them in the industry. I know how to elicit a certain emotional response from people in a conversation that'll get them handing over their credit card to fork over a lot of money in my direction. Um, But there's a lot of people out there doing that. And then when somebody doesn't get results, it's almost like a cult-like thing where it's like, well, sorry, I guess you just didn't have enough faith, you know, um, and put the blame on you instead of of on on the coach. there's, There's a lot of dysfunction in this industry as a whole. And I don't know if we meant for the conversation to go, go in this direction, but I'm just kind of, you know, it, I think this is born of my own frustration of like trying to hire people and trying to work with people and seeing this massive disconnect. And so maybe if people out there are listening and they can think, okay, I'm not, I'm not crazy. Like there is this, this issue. We don't see collaboration. We don't see connection. We see disconnect and we see people fighting with each other rather than trying to serve the people who need the, the, the most help. Yeah, exactly. That's that's one of the reasons why wellness theory is what it is, is because we do exactly that. We we will work with people and we will look at them as, as a whole unit, like you've said, and, and as a whole being. And then as a, as a team, there's obviously us, but then we mm-hmm. will refer on as needed and, and seek those partnerships that are relevant so that the, the 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 client gets the full solution otherwise what are we doing we're just adding to the problem right so like yeah. you, we have to and i, I think it's our, our responsibility as professionals to actually speak more about it and and make sure that those collaborations do serve and that people are aware that that's kind of how it works because i would love it if a potential client come to us and ask us questions about well, who do you collaborate with? How, how do you make sure that I'm taken care of in your process? You know, take that ownership. Anyone listening that is thinking about reaching out for help, anybody you go to, ask questions, start to yeah. think about it from a different perspective so that you can start to not buy into some of these other style okay. of um, professionals, okay. air quotes, um, that are out yeah. there that are promising the, you the world in one way only. Well, this is your life. This is your health. This is your body. You get one one kick at this, and we we sort of fell in love with this idea that like say the medical industry was there to sort of catch us. They're a safety net, and we don't have to change our behavior. And you know, well, if my liver fails, I'll get a liver transplant. Yeah. Um, you know, or I'll just take this medication. And it's like that's a that's a horribly failing model. And this is not like, look, I love living in Canada and we do have one of the most advanced medical systems in the world. You know, if, if, if I bust my arm or something like that, like, yeah, I'm going to our, our modern allopathic medical practitioners because they're pretty darn good at this stuff. You know, if I tear a muscle, uh, I'm probably going to a surgeon to get that repaired. Uh, so I don't, I don't mean that as a critique, but rather we need to understand the, the massive limitations of this there, you know, in our, we have a triage model. So it's like, 
if you're maybe hypoglycemic, for example, you're not full-blown diabetic, but you're trending in that direction if you don't change your behavior, um, you will become, say, a type 2 diabetic. Well, the medical system really can't help you. They have to wait until you're full-blown diabetic, and then they'll start treating you. Yeah. And it's like, uh-oh. That's, that's where we're at. And there's so many people in the pipeline that are that, are that far down the line that somebody who is, you know, maybe hypoglycemic rather than being diabetic, they can't get the help they need from the medical system because you're not a priority. So we now have this backlog, this sort of tsunami of healthcare issues that are, are clogging up the triage because people in one sense aren't taking ownership of their health because perhaps they were actually sold this idea that like, you know, pharmaceutical intervention will save you or medical intervention will save you. You don't have to change your behavior and so on. I mean, uh, here's a whole other podcast really about the environment that we live in that drive, you know, looking at food companies and food manufacturers and so on. That'll be half of another conversation. But I think what I really just want to highlight is we must take ownership of our own health because there really isn't anybody out there that can save us. There isn't an institution that's going to save us. Um, the only way that you're going to experience, you know, have at least have a shot at having good health is if you take ownership of it yourself. Yeah, that's like rule, rule 101, <laughs> isn't it? It's principle 101 yeah. of any, anything is exactly. you've got to own it, otherwise nothing's going to change. <laughs> yeah, you can't rely on something else to keep you healthy. You've got to take proactive, you've got to take proactive measures to keep yourself healthy and living a long life, but a long life of quality. You should be responsible. Yeah, Last, yeah exactly. And that's it. It's like I've seen it a lot where people as they grow older they they live to 90 100 but their quality of life is shockingly bad like they can't do anything and that's because they haven't looked after themselves they haven't taken that responsibility when they're younger and with back in like from years ago that's probably that's it's not their fault it's just that's what that's all they knew at that time but now we know we have the knowledge we have the capacity like they said with the with the explosion of, of the internet social media and everything there's no excuse not to know anymore um and it's now it's that time to really start to take that responsibility back for ourselves and start to realize that we are the only ones who are going to be able to create the the the, the life and the health that we want um but we have to take that full ownership um and i think when people can realize that they'll stop relying on, oh, some, this has happened, I need to go and see someone, or this has happened, I need to take this, or this has happened, you know, okay. Ask, like Charlotte said, ask the right questions. What do I need? <laughs> what do I want? Yeah. And I think there's been a real pushback or, or resistance to patients or clients being empowered. Yeah. And it, man, it comes from this, this sort of fearful, insecure space. Like, you know, I remember going to a doctor one time and, uh, I started, you know, sort of describing some of my hormonal issues and he said to me, you actually know more about this than I do. And I really respect him for saying that. This is not trying, me trying to say I'm smarter than a doctor or I have a doctor's equivalent education or something like that. But he said, like, I'm a, I'm a general practitioner. Like, we, we study all of this stuff, but we don't go into the depths. He said, clearly, this is something that affects you significantly and you've taken the time to educate yourself on this because it affects you personally. And he was able to point me in the direction of somebody who could help me more adequately with it. Um, but a lot of doctors aren't going to be like that. If you start asking questions, they're going to shut you down because it's this, you're questioning my professional knowledge. And like, this isn't an ego swinging contest here. This is like my health. And I would like to, I'd like to be an advocate for it. So it's, it's unfortunate that we find a lot of resistance still in, in sort of the, the medical industry, uh, you know, 
I, I, I greatly respect doctors. It's got to be like an incredibly challenging profession to basically see, hear everyone's problems all day long and you get maybe five minutes with them. And, you know, it's, it's not, they're, they're a part of sort of a broken system in a sense. Most doctors went into medicine because they want to help people. I, I, I understand that. So, uh, again, I, I really, do, it's not me talking down about doctors necessarily, but it's like we want to understand the limitations of it and we do want to become our own best advocates. And if you're not hearing something that, um, that really supports you, then you, you're well within your rights to go and seek a second opinion and have an, <clears throat> have another conversation about this. Yeah, yeah, and and look out for the red flags. Look yeah. out for the doctor that is just shutting you down and not actually trying to help you find a solution. And I think it's a it's a surprise. I mean, I was surprised the first time I spoke to a doctor. And um, barely when this was kind of early days, um, I I was in still in the, the very much the fitness space. Um, mm-hmm. And there's an understanding of nutrition. It's not nutritionist, but there's a there's a solid understanding and underpinning um, my, my qualification at the time. And I was talking to him, and he didn't know the first thing about nutrition. And I was like, mm-hmm. "Hang on, are you not a doctor?" Like it's not quite how I said it, but I was like, "You not a doctor mm-hmm. in my head?" And he was like just like you said he was a general practitioner he knows a bit about everything he knows enough to almost signpost you on to the next thing right and and i I remember that moment i was shocked i was like whoa and i think that was when i think i woke up to the 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 state of the medical system because you know the the way i was raised is like doctors have the answers you know it's the doctor that has the answer they they're like a superhero right and so we've almost set them up to fail because we go in with this expectation that they should know everything. So again, it comes back to that shared responsibility, I think. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, we, we've lost the ability to kind of tune into our body. And I know we didn't, we didn't tap, tap into this very much, but there's, uh, again, I, I would point a finger at, we live in a world that is filled with emotional anesthetics. So whether that's Netflix, whether that's junk food, whether that's readily available alcohol and, you know, the encouragement of overconsumption, there's all these emotional anesthetics available. And so we actually avoid and are even fearful of tuning into our body and and uh, hearing what it might tell us. And I think we could head off a lot of potential health problems if we're willing to tune in when something isn't quite right. And it's not that we want to become obsessive and fearful but rather um, just curious and open. And so when I work with clients, one of the things I have them practice is what's called a mind-body scan. Let's just get a sense of what's happening in your body in this moment. Just get used to the idea of tuning into it. You know, are you really experiencing hunger or is it something else? And and we've, we've kind of lost that ability. And I think if we were able to to listen to our bodies, and I mean, there could be a whole other podcast about what does it even mean to listen to your body? You know, what, what does that look like? Um, but get, getting curious about it again, I think this is a part of, again, taking ownership of your health, um, not necessarily filling your time with emotional anesthetics, but actually, like, what do you want your body to be able to do? And are you able to learn how to listen and tune into it and what it's telling you? Yeah, totally. Definitely. Um, her body scan is something we are huge advocates of. It really helps to teach people to connect on a deeper level with that and start listening. Um so it's such it's it's a, such a simple but very powerful exercise to do. We we heavily hold the belief that everybody has their own answers, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that doesn't always mean they know how to, you know, take the exact right next step. But at mm-hmm. least they have the the ability and the the intuition enough to ask the question that leads to the right place. 
right? So yeah. it's not like you're going to do a body scan and suddenly yeah. you you cure a broken arm, right? That, that's obviously mm-hmm. not going to be the case. Yeah, yeah. But w- what we need to do is be able to actually be aware of sometimes the most subtle things so that we can start to see what's coming up with that. Is there a solution already there that's coming up for you that you could try or that you'd like to do or you're being drawn to? Or is it bringing up a question that's leading you towards something that could be resourceful for you? And I think if we, if, if, if anyone listening to this is, is maybe a bit overwhelmed of what we talked about in terms of the, the mm-hmm. medical system and things as well, mm-hmm. I think it's a, a brilliant place to start and just see what comes up for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, just a very simple practical example. Um, yesterday I ate like a, a hash brown patty and I don't, I don't regularly eat them, but I was like, oh, it looks kind of good. So I'll, I'll, I'll try it. And uh, kind of later in the day, I just felt kind of refluxy, I guess I would say, like just kind of felt like my stomach felt off. I felt like a little bit um, slightly queasy and so on. And and I was like, okay, that's that's kind of a good sign. Like this isn't something I regularly consume. And uh, it's, it's not exactly a, a paragon of health here, uh, you know, a hash brown patty. Um, I enjoyed eating it. Um, I, you know, I ate it slowly, took my time and enjoyed it, but I didn't really enjoy how I felt after. And I go, oh, yeah, that's why I don't usually eat these things. Um, and, and maybe that's also me saying, even as a nutritionist, I don't always eat like a perfect, like virtuous monk, um, you know. So, but it, it's when we get tuned into this, we go, okay, so this is why I don't necessarily eat these things regularly because um, it doesn't actually sit that well with me. And when th- there can be actually some enjoyment, some really genuine enjoyment that comes from eating nourishing food, because it doesn't leave you feeling like that afterwards. You go, oh, like, I don't, I don't feel bloated. I don't feel sick. I don't feel, like, um, exhausted or sleepy after a meal. Like, I feel energized. That's a really good good place to be after you eat, you know, some really quality nutrient-dense foods. Yeah. yeah absolutely. It's <laughs> it's something that we always advocate to, um, to, to our clients as well, is when they are eating is if, not getting the result they want or they don't feel great is look at like listen to your body what's your body telling you when you eat your body knows your body knows your body's sending you those signals and it's very clear if you feel rubbish and bloated and you're in that you've got them in abdominal pain like after and after eating something that's a clear sign that your body does not like what you're putting into it and that could still be the quote-unquote healthy foods that um society mm-hmm. tells you is healthy it could be an apple it could right? be an apple like- it could be eggs it could be Whatever, like yeah. it, does, it doesn't just mean pizza, chocolate, and processed foods. Um, yeah. It's it's finding what what is working for you and what's not, and that's individual to everyone. I know I know people who have an aversion to broccoli. I know people yeah. who had who have a. But, re- but, but John loves broccoli. I, love broccoli, I have yeah. to say, this. Yeah. John, broccoli <laughs> is like oh, so, one of John's so, favorite. So do I. I do. Oh, yeah. There we go. There we Tro- go. You can be broccoli yeah. buddies. Broccoli yeah. buddies. Broccoli. So I think pe- people named Jonathan really like broccoli. Exactly, <laughs> the legendary name, and you know. <laughs> no, but I can say if people just start listening and mm. start listening to like this is healthy for you, this is not, and start actually listening to what their body's saying is healthy for them mm-hmm. or not. Yeah. Then I think people start to make those right decisions, and if they want something that they like to eat, but they know doesn't do them, it doesn't affect them in a negative way, that's a choice then at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. It's, it, they, be, they make that choice. They know what the result's going to be, but they're having it because they like it. And then, yeah. but they don't have it very often, like you said, like uh, with yourself. And I do the same as well. I don't do very well on pizza, but I love pizza. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. And <laughs> I'll have it once in a while because I love the taste of it, but I know it doesn't affect me great. Yeah. I don't feel great after, but I know that's going to come up. And I'll well, definitely gonna... make sure I won't eat that if I've got something creative or something productive I need to be doing like the next day. 
Absolutely. And you know, I, I, I also will just take a bunch of enzymes. So if I'm going to, so yeah. I don't really consume dairy either, which it, it is tragic because I, I quite like pizza as well. For me, it was, it used to be actually be like a trigger food. And I think it's a really wonderful comfort food for a lot of people. And that's why we, you know, we, and we probably have more pizza joints than any of the restaurant and like, it's, it's probably the most common restaurant, at least in North America. But, um, yeah, I would I would take some enzymes with it, and I would eat it with the awareness that. Uh, but now I would eat maybe two slices of pizza instead of you know when I used to eat an entire pizza to myself kind of thing. And it's funny that you mentioned sometimes healthy foods don't sit well with you. Like I don't do so well with legumes. Um, so whether it's you know kidney beans, chickpeas, that kind of stuff. I have all these dried lentils and kidney beans and chickpeas, and I I, I guess they're kind of in reserve if like food supplies get really scarce. Or something. Exactly, <laughs> they have a it's a last resort. And, like, in, in in that case, I, I'll consume them. But yeah, I really, I really, I want to like them actually because they are really nutritious. But the, the, no, it just looks like I swallowed a beach ball after I eat them. And <laughs> so, there's a lot of similarities between yeah, you two. It must it's be a, it must be a Jonathan thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I would also like to um, just add as well um, around this is we can take the same approach to nutrition in the same we can with emotion. Because I want to point something out that you mentioned earlier in the episode where you said um, that actually that life is of the full colorful ex- experience and spectrum of emotion, right? We're supposed to feel all of it. That's what it is to be human, yeah. right? And it's the, I think it's also the same with nutrition. It's okay to be experiencing different food groups and different things, so long as you're aware of how prolonged you experience it for, because that's when it starts to become a problem. Like you said, having two pizza slices instead of a whole pizza, right? Is the difference. It, it's very similar if you were to think about in, in emotions, having a few bad days is okay but if you mm-hmm. you entertain a cycle that keeps you there again it's going to end in suffering and i just think there's so many parallels i think if we can just start to to look at the way that we're thinking about things i think really a, a lot of suffering could, could really start to sure. come to an end what, what is that quote um like struggle is inevitable but suffering is optional nice yeah exactly yeah. Yeah, I'd like to take credit for that, but it's definitely not my, <laughs> not, not my own originally. Maybe some, maybe a listener, if there's a way to leave a comment somewhere, can can let us know who, who where that quote originated from. But yeah, I believe it goes. Yeah, yeah struggle is is inevitable. Um, and actually, I think we should not. Uh, again, we shouldn't we shouldn't reject struggle because that's where we find growth. It's where we're we're forced to become resourceful and dig in and and find our strengths and find the tools that we you know. Um, but suffering suffering is is optional, and so. Uh, maybe maybe something like Viktor Frankl or you know who wrote Man's Search for Meaning or something someone profound like that. So and anyone who's listening, just go and read that book anyway. Man's yeah. Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl is my one of my favorite books. I believe it's a must read for every human being, <laughs> no matter yeah. where they are. <laughs> oh, but and I, I I totally agree. Totally agree. We always say that you know stress is also a choice, but mm-hmm. meaning your reaction to it right it's, it's not your fault but it's your responsibility and it i think that comes down to a lot of things and i think if we can start to to really own that and own those statements and own those quotes and really look at the depth of what they mean i think mm-hmm. again the world would be very different it would awesome so this um God, I, I, at least you could just talk for hours. <laughs> crazy. I hope so. Anyone listening, I hope you're ready to go for another four hours. I'm just kidding. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, well, we'll just have to we'll just have to connect for a few more episodes uh, yeah, on, 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 sure, on wellness unplugged or on wellness theory. Uh, <laughs> either way, I think this is this is the beginning of like a really uh, fruitful collaboration and, and connection over the years of because you know we we have very similar beliefs and and ideals and really the goal of of creating better human beings or helping people to become better human beings. Yeah. Definitely, and uh, what 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 we're talking about today and what you shared. I guess it's probably blown a lot of people's minds and there's probably still processing everything that's going on, which is like amazing. So it's, is there anything that you would like, like to add to what, um, to the conversation? Is there anything that you feel that the listeners really need to, to, to know and to take away with them? I would say you're not crazy and you're not broken. Nice. And in, in that, I mean, you know, if, if you're experiencing something, you can't seem to get answers. It's not just in your head. There is something going on, but you just haven't necessarily found the, the answer yet. And sometimes that can feel really discouraging. And you wonder, is there any, any hope or help for me? And really, I, I speak from personal experience. I look back to the person that I was. If you would have met me 10, even seven, six years ago, you, you really wouldn't recognize me except maybe I have some facial features that are still the same and maybe a couple more gray hairs. But the, the individual you would have interacted with is very different than the person that I am today. Um, and so it, it's, you, you don't, don't think this is the end of the road for you if you're struggling. So you're not crazy. You're not broken. You just haven't quite found the answers yet and keep searching because it's worth it. Nice. Beautiful. Great Beautiful. statement to finish yeah, on. <laughs> exactly. Sums it up nicely. So before we do wrap up, where can our listeners come and find you? Uh, freedomnutritioncoach.com so that's my my website there um, I, and I will put a little caveat in there I, I do need to kind of update some of the um, some of the content on the website to really reflect how my own shift in coaching has occurred um, but freedomnutritioncoach.com um, I do have a, a short ebook if people want called Crush Your Cravings and I kind of I go into a little more detail of, of one of the things that I touched on here and a couple of other steps you can take um, so freedomnutritioncoach.com slash book so try to make that as simple as possible so we'll put the um, link in the show notes as well so it's easy. yeah yeah and then of course people are welcome to send me a friend request on Facebook I haven't I haven't hit my limit yet so um, my, my username is Canadian Nomad so Canadian O-M-A-D there's only one N there um but yeah, you're welcome to send me a friend request and just, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty down to earth. I love having conversations with people. And so you're welcome to, you know, people are welcome to reach out and just shoot me a message and say, hey, you, you mentioned this. I was kind of curious if you'd expand on it. I'd be happy to do that. Amazing. You are definitely down to earth and yep. we are very grateful that you've taken the time to come on to the Wellness Theory podcast today. And uh, for you guys listening as well, we've also done an episode uh, with Jonathan on Wellness Unplugged, which is his podcast, which we'll also put a link to in the show notes as well. Um, and I'm sure this will be one of many future conversations. Um, and thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me and thank you for the work that you do as well. I think it's really important that we have more people uh, in this space. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Then share it with a friend who you think might benefit. Spread the word. That's how we're going to impact the world by helping each other. We appreciate you so much and as always, unconditional love and wellness to you.